When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Introducing the new Starbucks Pistachio Cream Cold Brew. Silky Pistachio Cream Cold Foam tops our bold, smooth, cold brew for a delicious twist on a favorite winter flavor. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Roots music writer and historian Garrett Cash to continue their discussion of the history of gospel music in the United States. This episode draws primarily on People Get Ready, A New History of Black Gospel Music by Robert Darden and discusses the origin of the spiritual. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. I will continue in our conversation about the birth of gospel and spirituals. We're using Robert Darden's book, People Get Ready, A New History of Black Gospel Music as our source. When we left off, we were talking about traits of African music. Now we're going to talk about the rise of spirituals in North America. And it's not an easy question to determine when the first spirituals originated in North America. Yeah, this is very nebulous pre uh, you know, recorded music kind of uh, folk art that is very hard to nail down when these things got started. I mean, there's been a different starting date set by pretty much every historian that has ever tried to look at it, seems like. So doesn't seem like it's something that we're ever going to fully nail down, but definitely a early, early creation, that's for sure. Yeah, uh, there seems to be a consensus that spirituals in the modern sense of the word began to emerge in southern plantations in the 1700s but maybe even earlier african-american slaves were brought to north america in 1619 and for a long time slavers resisted teaching africans the gospel it was um the south wasn't particularly religious area in that period and which is kind of hard to fathom this by all accounts that was the case (laughs) yeah (laughs) and uh and and they really resisted, you know, there was a lot of moral conflict with the idea of enslaving fellow Christians. So you wouldn't want to proselytize to people that you're then going to horrifically abuse. But uh, that that uh, taboo was broken down over time, especially with the Great Awakening, which was um, the first religious revival in American history in the mid-1700s. Um, and it's it's yeah it's so hard to imagine the south without church being a regular part of the circum of of you know the lifestyle but apparently that was the case before the great awakening and it's also hard to imagine religious music in this period because the early protestant sects in england would sing the psalms of david 
set to about 35 monotonous tunes with no harmony, no musical accompaniment. Everybody would just sing the one note. And uh, according to Darden, even eventually, even the dour Puritans tired of this. So, uh, and then you, you know it's got to be pretty boring if a Puritan gets bored of it. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they're sitting on the wooden benches and the whole bit. But a guy named Isaac Watts came along and, quote, almost single handedly revitalized sacred music in England and the colonies. Uh, his books, his song collections, Hymns and Spiritual Songs in 1707, and the Psalms of David, imitated in 1719. Uh, were massively successful with Protestant denominations in England and America. And the first African-American hymnal, a collection of spiritual songs by Richard Allen, included 54 hymns, and most of them were from Watts. So we know that the songs of Isaac Watts did have some influence on African-Americans who were introduced to the gospel. Um, But there's still some debate over how much of, of spirituals are derived from purely African traditions and how much was influenced by um, Watts and other hymn writers. One of the most famous hymns, of course, is Amazing Grace, with words by John Newton, who was the captain of a slave ship, who swiped the tune from somebody, probably a slave, he heard on one of those ships. So it's a pretty heavy story. There's a guy named Wentley Phipps, African-American preacher, who has a great YouTube video um, telling the story of Amazing Grace. And he's preaching to a mostly white congregation, and it's a really, really powerful telling. So Whitley Phipps on YouTube, check that out. Highly and, recommend and, and if you really want to go deep down the Amazing Grace rabbit hole, it's the uh, it, it's considered the most recognizable song in the entire world. And uh, there is a entire book about the song and its history and uh, the history of John Newton and his autobiography that he wrote also uh, by an author named Steve Turner. Definitely recommend checking anything he did out. Um, I haven't gotten to read that book yet, but I assume that it's just as great as everything else he's ever done. It's an entire book about that song and it being the most recognizable song there is and how it got to that point. Yeah, it's definitely on my list. I'm hoping to have Mr. Turner on to discuss it at some point. Um, But let's talk about the methodology of slavery, which was incredibly vicious. Um, They methodically separated people who spoke the same language, same tribes. They deliberately separated families, systematically denigrated and sought to eliminate African culture, even banned drums in North America. And that's a big difference between North America and, say, Cuba or Brazil, where the slaves could could still have their drums and their dancing and much more their culture. In North America, any percussion had to be your hands or your feet. Um, and, you know, but the slaves adapted. It's, it's really a testimony to the adaptability of human beings that they were able to maintain and create a culture. Disparate people from different tribes, different regions, different languages, forced into this heinous, horrible situation, cruelly abused at all times, and they form um, a culture and forge a culture and create these spirituals. They think that work songs were probably um, the precursor of the spiritual. There's also what they call the ring shout, which would slaves would get away from the slavers and hold religious ceremonies and and sing. Um, you know, so it's this stuff was really forged in the fire. I mean, the 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 pressure these people are under is is unfathomable. And I hope that nobody alive today is go anywhere in the world is going through what uh, these folks were going through at that time. It's just utterly heinous. And it's really um, pretty inspiring to me to think about th- what they came back with, the art that they came through, and the fact that they survived spiritually and physically. Um, just, just amazing stuff. And I love how they retained the the importance that rhythm had to their culture and their lifestyle, regardless of the fact that they didn't have the instruments that they kind of built their rhythm on, because the ring shout is kind of interesting. You would expect from the name ring shout that obviously we hear shout and we think of uh, someone yelling, you know, a, a yelling of ecstasy or something like that. Um, the, the word shout in this instance actually means a dance. 
And it was a dance that they would do kind of in a circle. They would form a circle and uh, therefore the ring. And the and it was almost like a, a little spiritual mosh pit in some sense. You know, they'd be doing their little <laughs> dances around in the circle. And, and, and it would be uh, very rhythmic. And, you know, you can look videos up of uh, the Georgia Sea Island singers doing this on YouTube. They're, they're going around in the circle and kind of shuffling their feet in such a way that it creates this great uh, polyrhythm. And it's just amazing to me to think that, you know, here are these people that have had their instruments stripped from them by uh, their evil overseers. And instead of uh, just giving up on the rhythm of their life, the, the rhythm that they build their their culture and their social uh, activities around, they use their own bodies that God gave them to uh, do a you know, a replication of it to the best of their ability and create a whole new thing out of it. Yeah, it's it's a real testament to the human spirit and just refusal to be broken and and the creativity and adaptability that, that human beings have. Um, and then talked about the Great Awakening. I want to give a few more details on that. It was the first one was 1750 to 1790. A guy named George Whitefield uh, was one of the big evangelists behind that. Jonathan Edwards was another one. Um, and Steph's telling me it is time to cue our first song. So let's go in there. This is uh, something that Alan Lomax captured. Uh, this is a, a woman named Viola James and her congregation doing one of the spirituals called, Is There Anybody Here Who Loves My Jesus? that's Viola James and her congregation captured by uh, the folk archivist Alan Lomax doing, is there anybody here who loves my Jesus? And obviously uh, we don't have any recordings of, of the original spirituals and even very few accounts of the old spirituals. People were not documenting uh, what the slaves were doing. There was a whole industry devoted to dehumanizing these people. So there was no such thing as, as, you know, methodical folk, archiving of, of what they were creating in the in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. It's only in the early 19th century that we get the first accounts of this stuff. Um, but back to the Great Awakenings, there's these, this guy George Whitefield is having these huge revivals uh, in the upper Midwest, Kentucky, uh, in particular, the Cane Ridge camp in Kentucky, and black and white people would come together it was mostly Baptists and Methodists, um, but a lot of people are converting to Christianity for the first time, both white and black, and they're singing these camp meeting songs. And this is um, where some of the controversy about the origin of the spirituals comes from, because some of the early musicologists, particularly ones who had studied the white gospel tradition, were um, putting down some arguments that the music was uh, that the spirituals were overwhelmingly influenced by these camp meeting songs, but that's been kind of debunked, and we'll, we'll talk about that more a little bit later. It's, um, again, though, it's it's powerful to imagine these meetings. This is the first time for many of these people that uh, white people and black people had interacted uh, at, at up close, and so it's um, an absolutely pivotal moment in, in American culture, and it this conversion goes on that you know the 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 religious heat is so hot that that the taboos against converting slaves to christianity are breaking down but then after nat turner's slave rebellion and he was a christian and a preacher um that slows down after 1830 but then and also around this time the mainline southern denominations buckled under and changed their philosophies to please the slavers. I mean, it's it's uh, a classic case of selling out for mammon and changing your theology to please, um, you know, the people that are paying the bills. It's an ugly, ugly period in history. But after 1830, 
1860, then there's another period of heavy proselytizing. But the and you, um, can, you can see this kind of played out. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the classic antebellum uh, era work of fiction, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, and in the book, one of the kind of primary uh, plot lines is the um, white, uh, I believe she's the, the daughter at the plantation, is teaching Tom how to read, and she's teaching him how to read from the Bible. And there is a tension between certain people like some you know some of the people think that this is a good thing that she's teaching him uh, scripture how to read the bible and then some people don't like that he's learning how to read and you know learning the scriptures and whatnot and so there, there's definitely the uh c- contending camps there during this time yeah for sure and, and there were some serious um sanctions against teaching slaves to read because knowledge is power and and that was dangerous and something the slavers wanted to avoid and also um the Darden says that the slaves, quote, retained those elements of African religion that re- remained functional to their needs and pieced together beliefs from Christianity to create something that would help them survive, something of real value. And also, quote, by operating under cover of Christianity, aspects of Africanicity could be practiced openly. So there's kind of this stealth um, aspect to this that is something that's going to continue. People that are in these hideously oppressive situations master double talk and and master multiple meanings so that they can say something in front of their master and in front of fellow slaves and the slaves will get one message and the master will be oblivious to it so um again you know triumph of the human spirit and then this whole debate about the the musical sources of the spirituals um a guy named george pullen jackson is the guy i referenced earlier he was a musicologist uh kind of the first scholar of of white gospel music and and especially the shape note singing, which was a, a, a method of teaching people to read music without teaching them the full uh, musical literacy, but it's kind of a shortcut to musical literacy. He claimed to have matched 116 melodies in, he found in spirituals out of a book of, of 893 that he had access. And, and he said that 116 of those had melodies that matched 116 known camp meeting songs from this period. But Alan Lomax, the musicologist, he came down and said on the side that this stuff was primarily of African derivation. And he said that 110 of those 116 camp songs had structural characteristics of African vocal practice. So not a musicologist. I can't arbitrate this, but it does seem like well, definitely Darden comes down on the side of the African origins of this music. Um, but I do believe it's a bit more of a blend than Darden thinks, just if only for the fact that they're singing in the English language. I think that has an immense impact on how the brain processes. To me, language is the software of the human brain. And so that has to have a big effect because they're singing in a European language, not in their one of their native African languages. So I think that... Uh, is definitely a factor. Plus, you see a lot of the gospel tunes that we can be pretty confident they did get their melody from Watts or, or one of the other Protestant hymns. So, again, it's it's this big debate. Is this well? And, and you got to think about what they would have been exposed to as well. The context of you know what what was day to day life like for them. What would they have actually heard in their life? And um, by and large, what they would have known was the African folk music traditions that they had grown up with or brought with them, uh, you know, depending on how far back you go, um, or you know, the music that they would have heard the white people singing. And those two things, it just seems like, to me, are, are bound to meet somewhere in the middle, and that's what this music ends up becoming, is just a blend of both. And, of course, it would be easy to make an argument for either one. I would think that, oh, it's a white origin, it's a black origin, because both are true. Yeah, but I do think that the recipe probably does favor the African side, just because of all the call and response, uh, the polyrhythms, the syncopation, um, very foreign to the white musical traditions right. uh, that we're talking about. And, and our Nathaniel Dett, who um, was uh, a, a classical music composer, but African-American, uh, born 1882, died 1943. He argued that the rhythms found in the spirituals, as opposed to the hymns, um, 
are uh, points to uh, evidence of, of African origin and the presence of the syncopation. And let's go ahead and hear our next tune. And this is an arrangement uh, by Nathaniel Dett. This is sung by the Nathaniel Dett Chorale. And this is his arrangement of the spiritual Listen to the Lambs. And this is one of many instances of people attempting to recast the spirituals in the mold of European classical music. Listen to the Lambs by the Nathaniel Dett Chorale, which is a more recent recording of an arrangement that Nathaniel Dett wrote while he was alive. Um, powerful stuff, and it's interesting that there's this assimilationist current of African Americans trying to adapt their music to be more pleasing to European ears and, and American ears, white American ears, and we'll talk about that. Uh, and, it, and it does show you, too, like because we were just talking about white influence versus black influence that that recording is a black song you know arranged to sound like a a you know white european composition and the, how there's not really that aspect of like you know the the track we heard earlier that lomax recorded how that that track is almost entirely based on rhythm it'd be like you know james brown versus doris day here almost you know like there's just <laughs> it's so stark the difference with the the one that had the call and response and the and the great strong uh, beat going and that one which was you know very beautiful and and very well arranged um but it has that kind of stateliness that the other one has a little bit more of that raw um improvised feeling yeah absolutely and it's also a testimony i think to the humanity of african-americans that they're such talented mimics just like any anybody else they can imitate you know what other people do and they hear european music and many um mastered uh european music in the 19th century particularly in 20th century uh you know to a really high level so you know fascinating blend stuff and then another thing that that another factor that's important that comes along in this time is the emergence of black preachers i mentioned nat turner was not only a revolutionary but a preacher as well and um they from the beginning the first accounts we have of black preachers two things are consistent in every one of those accounts from the 19th century one is the condescending kind of mockery of their uh, theology by the white writers who are observing it, which I wouldn't expect any better. And then the other thing, though, is an emphasis on the power of their oratory and particularly the rhythmic cadences of their speaking. And so this is something that is going to be a factor throughout the 20th century, the great preachers like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and the great comedians but also leads to hip hop. So um, that spoken rhythmic oratory is, is a feature of African-American culture from the get-go. And they, they mentioned a guy, Darden mentions a guy, uh, Andrew Marshall, who was a free black preacher in Savannah, Georgia, until his death in 1856, and had congregations of enslaved black people. And it's I'd really like to know more about that, because that's how did that happen? How did somebody attain his own freedom and have the status as, as a native georgian i can tell you a lot of weird stuff happens in savannah so you know. <laughs> <laughs> all right it's it's that kind of town um, and um there are accounts of slaves in the north singing the new isaac watts hymns but almost no record of that happened in the south and the first account of southern slaves singing spirituals goes back to at least 1816 a guy named george tucker um wrote that down. And then a guy named Levi Coffin, who was a Quaker abolitionist and underground railroad activist, he wrote an account in the 1860s about hearing spirituals in the 1820s. But the first, what they consider the first, quote, definitive account of the musical form was from 1830, 
And Darden doesn't cite who this was, but a visitor to Charleston, South Carolina, described um, in some detail what he heard the slaves singing. And I always think it's interesting. So many of these accounts are from people who visited the area. It seems like the people who lived in the area took it for granted, um, which I think is is pretty standard. And then one line of research that I found pretty interesting is – People like John Work, who was a musicologist, African-American musicologist and associate of Alan Lomax. It might have been John Lomax, actually, that he worked with. Um, but he cites a colony of freed slaves who were transported to Haiti in 1824. But And they were researched in the 1930s. And they were singing spirituals, not in a religious context anymore, but in, in parties. They would sing Roll, Jordan, Roll while they had corn husking parties. And so John Work argued that that shows that, 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 that these tunes were perfected by the 18, early 1820s. And so that's where a lot – that's some of the evidence for people thinking that this, the spiritual form was mature by the late 1700s. Um, also, a book, C.L. Edwards' Bahama Songs and Stories from 1895 collects multiple spirituals who uh, were collected from descendants of of slaves of Tories who left America in the 1770s during the American Revolutionary War. And um, multiple of the spirituals that we know uh, in mainland North America were present in the Bahamas in 1895, and they got there in the 1770s. So again, it points to this stuff um, having quite a bit of provenance. And then the commenters on the aesthetic value and the importance of spirituals it's not hyperbole like alan lomax called this um he said in the negro spiritual the american folk art reaches its zenith the most impressive body of music so far produced by americans so and and lomax was familiar with jazz and blues and uh, what we would consider modern gospel so that's pretty heady praise that and it's it's an incredible body of work. I mean, it's... And I would say that most people that know about or care about Alan Lomax are probably more interested in, like, uh, country blues and whatnot. So interesting that the the man that so many people are going to, more so probably for other genres, actually considered this the highest form. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and back to Nathaniel Dett, he had a great quote that Darden cites, and he said... Uh, for the Negro, the spiritual was the sole avenue of emotional relief. For most people, the making of folk songs is incidental to the rest of life. For the creators of the spiritual, it was life itself. So these people had had so much stolen from them that they that they you know music was one of their only outlets. And so that is Dutch theory as to why uh, the power of the spiritual is so manifest. Um, and and definitely hard to argue with that. And there's also a lot of evidence that spirituals were used to send coded messages. We know, um, at least in one instance, the song Follow the Drinking Gourd was used as a map for slaves embarking on the Underground Railroad. If, if, if you listen to the lyrics of that song, it tells you, you know, the drinking gourd is, is the Big Dipper. And follow that and go north. And there's multiple instructions in that song, uh, you know, telling you to follow the rivers, which way to go, etc. So, and, and this and this is why uh, for a lot of people who are even interested in kind of being able to preserve this spiritual art form. They had a lot of difficulty even being able to get the accurate music from the people who knew it because these songs were very much protected like a secret code. Um, Many of the songs like that one were used pretty much specifically as maps to uh, escape to freedom or to find meeting places, uh, things of that nature. And uh, there are many accounts of people in the 19th century trying to preserve uh, slave songs and having a very difficult time doing so because they have to really win the trust of the people who know them uh, to, to tell them the songs. And even in a, a lot of cases, they can tell that the songs are either altered or, you know, there's different versions that are so radically different that you got to think that somebody was trying to cover up the actual code in the song. I mean, it's it's just very interesting that these uh, these songs had such uh, important information hidden in them 
that it made them it made it difficult for people to actually understand or know the music itself due to that. Yeah, it made it difficult for scholars. But let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll talk about the emergence of the music post-Civil War. And so after the Civil War, um, the first collection of spiritual of slave songs is compiled. Um, a, a book called Slave Songs of the United States was compiled by William Francis Allen, Lucy McKim Garrison, and Charles Pickard Ware. They were abolitionists. I think Allen was a Union soldier, um, and it's the first scholarly work documenting Afro-American songs. So they were right there at Fort Sumter and the islands around there, and there were multiple plantations, and they went to those plantations and documented as many of those spirituals as they could. And um, that's the first record of the lyrics and and melodies of of these songs that we have. So it's incredibly important stuff. And this alliance between abolitionists and slaves is very, very important, um, not just to the Underground Railroad, but also to documenting uh, this this music and to the emergence of the next era of spiritual singing, which is what they call the Jubilee era. And you know, after the Civil War, there's a ten-year period of Reconstruction in which there was. A modicum of effort made to give some restitution to the freed slaves and some rights for for about a decade. There's some freedom. It's it's a bloody period. There's pushback and an exploitation, but there there is this window of opportunity. And in that period, this place, uh, Fisk, Fisk University, is one of about a dozen universities chartered in the South by the American Missionary Association. And Fisk is in Nashville, Tennessee, and um. A union veteran, George Leonard White, was the first music teacher. Then he became the university treasurer, and he noticed that the kids at that school, that there were some exceptionally talented singers there, and he organized a a choral and um, started teaching them to sing in in kind of a European style, and um, they started playing shows they sang at the national teachers association convention and it's interesting that at that meeting many people objected to seeing black people on stage like there was gasps of shock when when the curtains came back and and you see black people on the risers whereas other people um were so pleased by it they wanted the the fisk jubilee singers to open every session at the convention so it's immediately controversial but immediately powerful and then they go to new york where they're sponsored by henry ward beecher who's the brother of harriet beecher stowe who wrote uncle tom's cabin and he he uh gives them that cachet that they kind of struggled in Kentucky and Ohio and different places like that. But once they get to New York and they're uh, accepted by the kind of the cream of the abolitionist society, um, they get over pretty big. Their material originally was heavy on the Stephen Foster songs. They did the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And the spirituals were initially only performed as encores. But eventually, audience enthusiasm moves them to the center of the show. And they performed Go Down Moses for President Grant. So making a pretty big immediate impact. Yeah, and I do want to mention for those out there that don't know the biblical background that uh, Jubilee, kind of interesting that they would name it the Jubilee Singers or the Jubilee Music. It's actually a, a term referencing uh, to the Bible and the and the Torah, the um, first five books of the Bible written by Moses, that there was a year of Jubilee that would happen at the end of seven uh, sabbatical cycles of the sabbatical years. And uh, at that time in the year of Jubilee, the slaves and prisoners would be freed and debts would be forgiven. God's mercies would be particularly manifest, et cetera. But uh, I, I thought an apt uh, name for the uh, subgenre here and the era and style that it would be about uh, freed slaves and whatnot. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting that with the Fist Jubilee singers, you have sort of the first attempt to bring this music before an audience that would have never heard it unless they had been you know intimate with the uh goings on at these plantations for decades and uh for many people even someone like you know mark twain uh who became a big fan of uh the fist jubilee singers had never heard music like this before apparently and was floored by it 
Yeah, he, he had heard it on Plantations, but he, he hadn't seen it presented professionally before. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and his great classic is um uh, they they reproduced the true melody of the plantations and the only persons I ever heard accomplish that on a public platform. And he said that um, he would I heard them sing once and would, I would walk seven miles to hear them sing again. So and he compared them very favorably against the minstrels and we'll talk about minstrelsy in a bit. But that he felt that minstrelsy was misrepresenting uh, the true spirit of of African American music and that the jubilee singers were much closer to what he heard on the plantations and that they had preserved a lot of the power and a guy named Theodore Seward comes into the picture and is, uh, a, a more professional musician. And he, um, trained the singers to do a classical arrangement to, to do the SATB, the soprano alto tenor bass harmony structures that is typical of European choral singing. And so they get, you know, even more polished and trained up. And in 1873, they tour England and end up doing a private concert for Queen Victoria herself. And they sang, Steal Away to Jesus, Go Down Moses, John Brown, and a chanted version of the Lord Prayer for the Queen. And that, you know, gave them the imprimatur of the Queen herself and really got them over in England. Um, and then, and, and Darden also argues that. European and white American audiences were in no way, shape, or form ready for the raw spirituals. That they, what they were hearing from the Jubilee singers, as much as we might look back and say, man, they really whitewashed this stuff. This is really tamed. This is really different from the authentic spirituals. But this stuff was shocking and powerful, kind of overwhelmingly powerful for European audiences. So, um, you know, these African traditions are packing so much magic that, you know, you can only blow people's minds so much at a time. And, and this was about as, as far, uh, you know, as people were ready for. And even something like W.E. Dubois, the great African-American scholar who attended Fisk University, he heard the spirituals for the first time from the Fisk Jubilee singers. So, you know, this these traditions were not, it wasn't publicly available. It was something you had to be at the ring shout back in the woods at the plantation to hear. And if you were somebody like W.E.B. Dubois, who had not been raised on the plantation, this was new to you. And he said, I was thrilled and moved to tears and seemed to recognize something inherently and deeply my own when he first heard the Fisk Jubilee Singers. Now, a few years later, when he's teaching in a rural school, he gets the chance to hear the spirituals in their native environment and, you know, is even more blown away. But but to me, it's very telling that that people like Mark Twain and W.E.B. Dubois are are blown away by the Fisk Jubilee Singers. You know, it's it's this was state of the art music in the 1870s for sure. And the concept of kind of crossing a cultural bridge is something that is. Uh, not not only acceptable but encouraged uh, in scripture. Even there's a uh, famous example in the Book of Acts where the Apostle Paul is going to be uh, preaching the gospel to the Greeks, and this is of course at the time of uh, these of Stoicism, the ancient Greeks uh, uh, writers that we think of uh, a lot now as influential. The the Plato Plato had been. Uh, important hundreds of years before but now, now you have these new stoic writers and paul was going there and quoting their own stoic philosophers to them and he was uh referencing the statues that they had uh, in the city and his sermon i mean you know he's referencing their culture the things that they would have understood etc and so this is the same concept here being played out is that you have your message your thing that um, you're ready to bring to the world. But to be able to bring it to the world, you have to sort of uh, bring it under the cloak of something that you already recognize for you to be able to more readily accept it. Yeah, absolutely. And let's hear our next song. This is the Golden Gate Quartet doing Sweet Adeline. Each night, dear heart, each night, dear heart, for you I pine, for 
And that was the Golden Gate Quartet doing Sweet Adeline. And tell us why you picked that one. I picked that one because uh, we're going to be talking about um, the tradition of barbershop quartets here in just a moment. And uh, that song is actually, if, if you study barbershop music and are a part of a barbershop group, there's actually kind of a core group of songs, sort of like, uh, you know, a, a uh, rock and roll fan might learn Johnny Be Good the moment they start learning a guitar. Uh, you you want to learn these core group of songs that every barbershop quartet or group should know how to um, sing. And that's one of the songs that pretty much any group can sing. And that is the Golden Gate Quartet, of course, who is one of the most commercially successful uh, purveyors of Jubilee and gospel music in the 30s, 40s and early 50s. Uh, performing a barbershop song. So I thought that was an apt uh, you know, way to tie that in. Perfect. And now we're going to talk about the other musical force that was active after the Civil War, and that's minstrelsy. Minstrelsy emerged, um, and this is the infamous blackface uh, form. Um, the first troops started in the early 1800s. There's different accounts it might have the first one might have been in 1815 might have been 1829 might have been 1832 but we know it was definitely going um by the 1830s the uh in the 1840s the um and now i'm blanking on the, the name of dan emmett's group the virginia minstrels i believe were in the five points in new york city and were you know a massive cultural phenomenon and minstrelsy obviously has many problematic aspects. It's it's racial stereotyping in, in a cruel and buffoonish way, but at the same time, it was the first American cultural export. This is the first art form from America that flourished in Europe. Even before the Civil War, it was it was big in Europe, and it was the dominant form of American entertainment for the entire 19th century once it got going. So there's a lot of power there. And uh, a little bit more nuance to it than just it wasn't just racist buffoonery. It's also taking elements of African-American music and introducing it to um, white American audiences for the first time. And so, you know, somebody like Daddy Rice, who is credited with writing Jim Crow, but you know, his story was he heard a slave singing and dancing to it. Um, there's some power to these tunes and there's something real from the African tradition that gets into this form and and had this massive impact uh not just in america but around the world it was uh darden says it was the for the first time marginally educated audiences that were hungry for entertainment and remember there's no radio there's no tv they don't even have colored newspaper comic strips yet they are starving for something to do besides playing cards and drinking themselves into oblivion and um or listen to themselves sing and so you know, for the first time, marginally educated audiences hungry for entertainment saw the extraordinarily rich culture of African-Americans and the enthralling vitality of this material, even as adapted by white performers, accounted in large part for Minstrelsy's great initial impact. That last one was from a guy named Robert C. Toll, who's one of the scholars of Minstrelsy. And right. something great book. His book is very good. Cool. I want I, I need to read that. I, I, that's a whole nother project. That, yeah, that if you, another rabbit hole to dive down that his book, uh, Darkest America, I think, is another one uh, that that will definitely blow your mind reading those books. Yeah, I've read Darkest America and that definitely. Um, yeah, a, a lot going on there. And, and one of the things that did blow my mind about it is after the Civil War, black performers put on blackface and start doing yeah. menstrual shows. It's one of the first chances, you know, a, a handful of, of people had the chance to be Jubilee singers at someplace like Fisk University. Most African-American musicians didn't have that opportunity and menstrual shows were the only opportunity they had to work as entertainers. And so, um, and it, it's also interesting when you, when you read this stuff that the first waves of minstrels were seen as, relatively faithful interpreters of african-american music but by the 1860s it had changed and become you know the connoisseurs of the form thought it was watered down and they welcomed this infusion of authenticity that that the black performers brought to it and um 
you know, even somebody like W.C. Handy, the father of the blues, said that the minstrel show at that time was one of the greatest outlets for talented musicians. Handy started out in minstrel shows. And this continues. I mean, somebody, even somebody like Rufus Thomas, the great uh, soul and funk singer of the 60s and 70s, he started out as a rabbit foot minstrel. So this tradition is uh, remarkably long lasting and, and ongoing. And, and there's a guy um, that... Let's see. Um, look at my notes. Um, there was a guy who. Where's my notes on this? The um, there's a there's uh, here it is. James M. Trotter, who was an African American author, and his book came out in the 19th century. It was called Music and Some Highly Musical People: Remarkable Musicians of the Colored Race. And Trotter was a classically trained musician, and his whole goal was to uh, tell the stories of african-american musicians who had mastered classical music so this is a book about you know primarily or almost exclusively black people who are playing um european style music and as part of his research he went to see the georgia minstrels which is one of the african-american minstrel troops and he was very reluctant to do it because he had heard how offensive uh the the buffoonery was and and but he came out of it said he was appalled by the stereotyping but delighted by the musicianship so even somebody like that who's totally coming out of the classical tradition who's very much trying to assimilate and um sort of prove to the dominant white culture that you know my people can master your music we are civilized worthy intelligent people but he had to 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 give props to the georgia minstrels for for bringing it, for being extremely talented musicians. And you know, George Callender was the director of the Georgia Minstrels. And it's interesting that a lot of these scholars of minstrelsy point out that once again, there are layers and layers of code to these communications. And that when black performers would do minstrel shows, they would sneak in messages that were counter to the dominant narrative. Like it was one of those things, just like when they were singing Christian songs, they were then free to bring a lot of their African religious practices back because it seemed like they were, were you know, following masters' religious traditions. Once they're putting on blackface, they're masked, and then they can offer these critiques of the dominant culture. So it's pretty interesting stuff and a lot going on. And obviously, I'm not endorsing minstrelsy, or blackface, but it's more complicated than just minstrelsy bad. There was a lot going on. And the, and the music, uh, surprisingly, has lived on in some ways. Like uh, one, one thing that really surprised me when I started uh, studying uh, minstrelsy and its place in American music was I, I went and listened to this album, and I, I can't think of the name of it right now, but it's a album that you know was recorded pretty much to sound exactly what you know, we could approximately say minstrel music would sound like at the time using the instruments of the period and whatnot. And I was very surprised when I heard it that it sounded exactly like something I had heard before. And I was trying to think of what it was. And then I realized that what it sounded exactly like was the music of the Carolina Chocolate Drops, which are a very popular group of the last 10 or 15 years that um, very big in the Americana and country music circles. So they're African-American um performers of music that is getting called Americana music or roots music. But when you actually listen to what they're doing, they are performing minstrel music a lot of times with, uh, they, they might be covering a, a rap song or a old, uh, you know, bluegrass song or something like that. But the style is absolutely minstrel. And when I got to talk to some of the members later at, at, at a show, um, that turned out they were huge nerds of you know, minstrel music and whatnot. So it's it's just interesting how you know uh, still there are uh, there's power to the music uh, and and that just continues to add to the complications here. Yeah, absolutely. And let's hear our next song. Um, and this is another Golden Quartet, Golden Gate Quartet number. This is the Golden Gate Quartet doing Jonah. Take my command, but he gave him his orders from his royal throne. Said, go down to Nineveh and preach my doom. Tell him 40 long days will pass them by. I'm going to destroy the city with fire. But Jonah didn't want to hear God's command. So he got him a ticket out for Joppa land. Then he got that ticket and got on board. And the ship went to rocking on down the shore. Then it's a whole Jonah. Oh, oh, 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 Jonah. Oh,
And that was the Golden Gate Quartet doing Jonah. And tell us why you picked this one. And I think I should have done these in the reverse order, but forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that's fine. I'm sure our audience is intelligent enough to flip it in their mind. But um, the uh, the reason why I picked this one is that uh, going back to what we were talking about with Jubilee, this is a prime example of the Golden Gate Quartet's um, kind of popular uh, Jubilee style that they were performing circa the 1930s in this case, but they uh, actually had huge hits on well into the 40s. Uh, and, and this song in particular does a good job of uh, showing the syncopated style that made them so popular. You can hear in the way that they're delivering uh, the the vocals here that there's a huge influence of blues and jazz music. Um, but it's also clearly the Jubilee style, which is taking a spiritual song and, um, you know, giving it that different way of performing it rather than the, well, I guess you call it traditional spiritual. Uh, so it's, it's another bridge, so to say, between the traditional spiritual, the Jubilee song, and uh, it's actually obviously anticipating the gospel sound. Yeah, powerful stuff. And now we're going to talk about Barbershop Quartet. So <laughs> forgive me, Garrett, for mixing up uh, the two songs. But Barbershop Quartet is something that that um, is one of those things that I had always just assumed always existed, but it actually had a birthplace in a time. Um, retroactively, the style got its name from the 1911 song, Mr. Jefferson Lord, Play That Barbershop Chord. But uh, the form goes back to the 1880s and 1890s, probably started in black barbershops, although white people were quick to pick up on it and claim it for their own, um, which is something that's going to happen again with jazz, where white jazz musicians are you know, onto it within five or ten years of its emergence and then go on and try to take credit for the whole thing. So you know, that's kind of a drag. But it's it's funny to think of barbershop quartets as an African-American form because it's now seen as kind of the whitest of all white musical forms. Yeah, I, I was extremely shocked when we read this Robert Darden book that he claimed that barbershop was a primarily African-American invention. I mean, it would be, uh, I, I don't know, it, it, it's like finding out that a African-American man invented mayonnaise or something. It's just so <laughs> uh, utterly shocking to imagine this. But um, one, one thing I did want to point out before we stray too far from it is that, you know, the name of that song where it says the barbershop chord. Uh, actually, it's kind of interesting. And I was doing research on this. I found out that the seventh chord, which we take for granted in music now, uh, actually got popularized in barbershop music and was known as the barbershop chord. So we can thank barbershop music for that. That's crazy. Um, yeah, and it's uh, yeah, it's 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 interesting. And and um, there's a guy James Weldon Johnson who wrote a book of Negro spirituals, and he also described the process of quartets finding new chords, and that you know it would be guys singing in a barbershop, and when they hit upon you know, the four four people singing, you're going to make chords. And when they would hit on something interesting, they'd say, hold it, hold it, you know, and they'd get, get it and memorize it so they could do it again. And that's how they came up with the famous barbershop chord. And it was first popularized in the minstrel stage and then in vaudeville. And it's happening right around this time as minstrelsy is fading, beginning to fade from popularity and be replaced by vaudeville, um, which is the a new a new form of variety entertainment that, you know, if you know about W.C. Fields or the Marx Brothers or Burt Williams, you know about vaudeville. Um, but like I said, this uh, form was quickly adapted by whites. Darden has a, a great list of black barbershop quartets names from the 1880s and 1890s. Some, some of them were called, one was called Black Diamond. There was the Darktown Quartet, Eclipse, Buckeye. One called Beethoven. I like that. That's some some gumption right there. Mountain Pink, uh, Garden City, Twilight, Climax. I don't know if that was racy or not at the time. <laughs> that, 
the Olympic and the Sans Souci Quartet for kind of a, a fancy thing. And and that they would tend to sing, um, many of them perform for both black and white audiences, but they would have different repertoires for the different audiences. And, and so then, some, of those, some of those names uh, should just go ahead and get used for like some metal bands or something now. Black Diamond, <laughs> I mean, come on. This, yep. this is gold. We're handing out gold. I'm pretty sure Black Diamond's been used, and I know there was a group called the Buckeyes. Uh, oh, it was, wasn't Climax a prog rock band, 70s? There was like definitely the Climax Blues Band uh, in yeah, the 70s yes. as well. So, yeah, these, you know, there's only so many good ideas in the world. Um, and then but no, uh, when but nobody has taken the name Beethoven for themselves again, though. <laughs> <laughs> That is that is pretty badass. I love that. I wish I could could have heard him. And and you know, it's one of the frustrating things about learning about this earliest period of recorded music is that, you know, it, recording is invented in the 1870s, but they don't really start recording music commercially until the 1890s. And they don't start recording black musicians in a systematic way until the 1920s. So we we are just robbed of whole generations of incredibly gifted musicians that we just will never know what they sounded like. So um, massive loss here that none of these groups got to record, but some of the white groups got to record. Um, uh, Darden mentions the Revelers and the Peerless Quartet. So I'm going to look those up and and check out what the barbershop sound was all about. But it's, it's, I don't know, it's just fun to think. And it makes perfect sense because the barbershop is still a massive part of African-American culture. So, um, you know, once Darden pointed that out, I was like, oh, okay, that, that yeah, makes definitely, sense. That definitely it makes sense for sure. And, uh, and then, of course, it just makes sense, too, to think that, of course, I would say, you know, a great many vocal harmony groups that became influential as you go down the line are primarily African-American vocal groups, thinking of uh, being spots, uh, groups like that. The uh, Moss Brothers. And, Right. And, and so as, as you continue to go down the line, you have doo-wop groups, et cetera. And uh, just se- seems like it, it would make sense for kind of the uh, beginning of this idiom to uh, come from the African-American fold, uh, considering how revolutionary they've been in that every step of the way. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a tradition that's still very much alive today. So um, pretty cool stuff. And we've covered most of what I wanted to cover. And next time we're going to come back and um, talk about the Pentecostal, the emergence of the Pentecostal religions, the holiness churches, which is where things get really intense and musical instruments get added to the your uh, Bring your tambourines for that episode. (laughs) I will. And my Hammond organ. Um, (laughs) And and, uh, we'll also talk about the first gospel composers and lead into um our half episode on of, on thomas dorsey so for garrett cash i'm nate wilcox and this has been holy roll number one and we'll be back with more next time keeping your feet warm dry and comfortable is top priority with people from all walks of life Boltfoot.com features 100% American-made socks with a wide array of styles so even the most discerning sock connoisseur can find their perfect pair. Nate wears Boltfoot socks on his tiny little feet when recording because they keep his toesies cozy. The best part is that 5% of all proceeds are donated to charities for veterans. Boltfoot.com. Grown here, sewn here. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes back Alana Nash to kick off our 14th season with a discussion of her book, The Colonel, The Extraordinary Story of Colonel Tom Parker and Elvis Presley. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 